Hello and welcome to Refi Radio. I'm your host, Will Moyo. In partnership with Park Madison Partners, Real Estate Fund Intelligence is bringing you monthly discussions with some of the real estate industry's most innovative voices. On this month's show, Nancy Lachine, Park Madison's founder and managing partner, speaks to Tony Bro, Senior Real Estate Investment Officer for the Oregon State Treasury. Nancy and Tony discuss Oregon's manager selection process, outlook on different property types and geographies, and how to build strong relationships within the institutional real estate community. Thank you, Will. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is Nancy Lachine from Park Madison Partners, and I'm here on Zoom with Tony Bro. Tony joined Oregon State Treasury in 2006 as the Senior Real Estate Investment Officer for the Oregon Public Employees Retirement Fund. The Oregon State Treasury currently has about $89 billion under management, of which uh, real estate represents about 10% or $9 billion, um, just a little under your target of a 12.5%. Tony, I'm thinking back to the first time we met, which probably wasn't long after you joined the Oregon Investment Office. Um, and I think I mentioned to you then how much I respected the state's alternatives program. Oregon was one of the first states to go into alternatives in a big way. Um, back in the prehistoric 1980s, I had a client named Jim George who ran alternatives for Oregon. And uh, I recall he was talking about investing with KKR when they were a startup LBO shop. Um, and the Oregon Investment Council had five professional business people who were non-political and seemed to make very solid business decisions. And that was in the context of some of the other things that were happening in public funds on the West Coast. So I, I've always thought of Oregon as being very forward-thinking public pension, one of the most forward-thinking public pension plans in the country. So you joined in 2006. And as I recall, you had a very open playing field with a focus on opportunistic real estate investments. Um, and you've, you know, had a, you know, a, a, a bit of a, a ride since then. You've certainly become a leader in the real estate pension community, not just for your own investment acumen um, and the real estate background that you bring to the table, but also for your ability um, to manage the portfolio with the evolving political landscape that you've worked around um, in a large state public pension fund. So, Tony, welcome to the show. We're really looking forward to talking with you. Thank you, Nancy. So let's start with you. Before you joined Oregon, um, you started your career in the U.S. Navy. Tell us a little bit more about where you grew up and, you know, kind of the beginnings. <laughs> Absolutely. So I came from a family of vagabonds, I guess. My Both my mom and dad were uh, <laughs> consummate travelers that um, didn't like to sit still for long, always looking for the next thing. So somewhere around late elementary school, ended up in Colorado, uh, little black dot on the map for a small town. My dad was both parents, PhDs, so very educational centric folks, but uh, found ourselves in a small town with my dad doing biochemistry and agricultural research and uh, loved living in the outdoors and the mountain communities, but uh, it's a long way from beaches and oceans. And so the exotic nature of getting out from the center of the US just appealed to me. Um, and I got a little stamped letter in the mail one day that said, um, well, I guess college was a preordained, it was going to happen. I, both my parents had achieved that, so I wasn't going to be the one that fell too short. And so at any rate, I, I got a little letter from the military. I don't remember if it was the Army or Navy first time off the bat and said, hey, we'll pay for your school if you make it into one of the academies or programs. And I had never considered that because I had very pacifist oriented parents and uh, thought, well, this could be a good way to get out of here and try something else. Um, so 
At any rate, uh, the Navy and Army got scholarships with them, chose, didn't really know what either one of them did. I knew one of them had boats, the other one ran around in the ground in camouflage, but that was about the extent of it. Didn't even know there was officers enlisted in the military, so that was another wake-up call. But uh, by default, decided Florida sounded pretty good. I had grandparents down there. There's palm trees. And I thought there were a lot of beaches next to University of Florida, never having been. Um, figured that out the hard way when I showed up. Um, and then I crossed town and rolled over to Jacksonville University, a small liberal arts um, school in Jacksonville, Florida, because it was closer to the beach, but actually had a very large ROTC program, one of the top in the country. So not, a, not as good a school, I don't think, but it was certainly a wonderful place to go and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, there did an eight-year stint with Navy, but kind of had to sort out what that was all about. And I was always a camouflage sailor, so one of those that ran around diffusing bombs and jumping out of airplanes. So I didn't do too much ship time, but I couldn't find my way from the pointy end to the back end of the ship. So anyway, it was a good long ride. Um, and then <laughs> real estate showed up. Well, I really want to ask what your parents thought of all that, but we have so much more material to go down. Um, but that must have been an interesting um, ride for them as well. Yeah, my mom was a pacifist and a Quaker. Um, so she got her PhD when I, when I was just a youngster and we were in Philadelphia. She went to University of Pennsylvania. So had chained herself to the White House fence more than one time demonstrating and very... Um, different mindset than the military, as you can imagine. Um, but I think, and then my dad, I, I went through his PhD in order, I think, to not have to get drafted into, or, you know, a decision was to continue educating and didn't get drafted. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he had any reservations with, you know, getting called up. It's just that that was, it was just the timing that worked there. So I think a part of him was always very fascinated by the military. Um, he had had a couple opportunities and used to do some contract work with them as well down at Los Alamos. So, um, Anyway, so he has a very favorable impression, but both of them lived vicariously through trying to understand what the military was, because there's an outsider's view, and then there's the inside reality, which is often different. Right, right. Oh, good. Well, good for you. Uh, um, you spent eight years in the Navy, and then did you go into real estate right after that? I did. Um, so I graduated, or I finished uh, an eight-year, um, kind of had the golden handcuff moment where you decided you're going to stick around and make it through to retirement. When you get to 10 years, you're kind of at that crossroad. And so I decided to go through the corporate headhunter programs that uh, will take your um, young junior officers coming out of the military, usually into the Fortune 500 firms, doing all sorts of different management, leadership, sales, you name it. And I ended up, um, not, the other job offers were with fantastic name brand companies and all over the board from marketing to well, sales, number of different opportunities, manufacturing. Um, but the one crazy interview I had was with this little boutique firm out of Chicago that I couldn't understand really what they did. And it was Sal Partners in its day. But um, I really didn't understand the interview. They weren't professional interviewers. Um, instead, it, they were professional real estate people. And Corporate headhunters have an entirely different way and a very static, um, you could, there's a question bank of probably 500 questions. If you memorize all of them, you can float through any interview and skillfully do it. LaSalle threw me for a curveball because they didn't have corporate headhunters or recruiters doing the job. Instead, they had the actual practitioners. So it was more engaging, more fun and dynamic at the same time. And so I, I took the job that made the least amount of sense, but seemed like going out there as far from the scripted military that I had been used to. Um, so I went out on a limb and found myself in real estate, not because it was real estate, but because I really liked the people I met. Um, and that's held true for oh, gosh. Yeah. 25 years now. 
Well, I think so many people, um, certainly of our generation, and I'm, I'm complimenting myself by putting myself in your generation, just to be clear. Um, but I felt the same way about real estate. You know, it was unlike banking and a lot of other sort of scripted professions. It was where the fun people went. And yeah. it was kind of a little, little bit the Wild West and, and definitely <laughs> a little unclear what you'd be doing. But I really liked the people. So um, I hope people, who, young people listening today can feel the same way about the business. Um, we have we haven't taken all the fun out of real estate. So. <laughs> it's a good community. I have faith in the youth below us now. Right. So you were so, and then did you end up in the industrial space as well? Do I remember well, that correctly? No. Yeah. So I actually started on the property and leasing side. Um, that was really where my mm-hmm. my formative years were. But I, I realized that each meeting I took, and as I got to know the asset managers or portfolio managers or owners as they came into town that the real money was over on the broker side because everybody wanted to know leasing. No one wants to talk about the landscaping or whether your cam reconciliations were done properly. And they just want to keep keep us out of the courts, keep your tenants happy. So I, I kept realizing, okay, I love macroeconomics and the big picture theory. I'm not a you know, detail guy, I guess you could say. And uh, at any rate, each step I, I realized, okay, I need to figure out how to pick that job. I really want to work my way up into the, the bigger picture view of investing, but not coming from a CFA background or an analyst pool or working your traditional sector. I had to come at it a little differently and be just more open to change. Um, so I uh, kept the moving vans quite occupied, went from Boston over to Hartford and then from Hartford um, went out to Australia. And I just really, it's just happenstance. So with the merger with LaSalle and Jones Lang Wooten, it provided and opened the doors of our opportunity that um, I'm very grateful for and that they gave me a chance to do that. Um, came back, found myself in Miami doing group management oversight with uh, Miami-Dade, Broward County, um, and then came out to the Pacific Northwest to get out of real estate and business altogether, go soul search, find my um, calling in life, which was going to be something very altruistic. That was a big talk. About three months later, I found myself with a developer out of Bellevue, Schnitzer West. Um, so worked down here in the Portland um, where they had a large legacy holdings from the family mostly, um, which is a Portland-based family. And uh, that's when the state found me and transitioned over to the LP side in 2006, as you said. So it was all not very well planned, but fun, fun to look back on. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure you learned a ton along the way. And um, I, <laughs> if people if people really try to chart their career path in real estate, it's, it's, those are the more <laughs> interesting ones. They just kind of happen. Um, so when you joined Oregon, what uh, what did the real estate portfolio look like? How big was it? How was it invested? I, I had the great fortune of joining um, a very small entrepreneurial team. We were well, what we call understaffed, but I would like to think it was lean in its own little way because bureaucracy wasn't um, getting in our path. But um, I was working directly for a gentleman named Brad Child, who had a lot of experience. You know him very well. Um, just a tremendous wealth of background, uh, very even keeled, and really couldn't have picked a better mentor or boss to have. I, I felt so fortunate to work for Brad. Um, but also a CIO, Ron Schmitz, who I believe is still over at Virginia. So another very good mm-hmm. thought leader, very articulate. He uh, he taught me what I asked him about his management style one day. And he says, NIFO. And I was like, okay, I had heard them all. I've never heard that one. And it was nose in, fingers out. And uh, I, I thought, well, you could not have 
he understood his management and leadership style so well um, that, that really articulated it. But it was a, only about a $2 billion program then, which to me was absolutely mind-bogglingly huge. Um, I guess back then before appreciation and everything else was good size. Uh, but it was a $2 billion real estate program at that point. And it consisted, as you had mentioned, of almost all opportunistic vehicles with some very four legacy long-term, one of them going back to Jim George's days with LaSalle, long-standing accounts that were core, but not very active. They were just 25% of the portfolio. The rest was out there in the Wild West trying to make private equity-like returns and really competing in some ways with a private equity portfolio shooting for that two and 20. Um, I always call it because we had to pay 2%, but you try to get a 20% return too. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, that was the portfolio. It has it's evolved obviously it's four times the size today and, yeah. um, you know you i know you've gone from being wholly you know focused on i mean i think in those days portfolios often were you know some blend of uh, inflation hedge and income and then some were just you know trying to compete with private equity um it sounds like oregon was more of the latter but it's it's evolved over the years to be something different in the context of the overall portfolio. So give us some insight into how that's evolved. Yeah, and I, I don't want to sell um, prior folks short. The um, I, I think it's just it was the complexity of the program probably hadn't been fully thought out in portfolio theory. So at the time, real estate was just, well, the portfolio, the, the Oregon plan was going through a natural maturation process would be another way to look at it. Um, but the Private equity uh, really was the genesis of the real estate program. Um, as you had mentioned, they invested in KKR in a number of very first-time private equity deals, and the board took a lot of um, pride in being private um, private investors. Um, that part of the portfolio was always exciting. They were very deal-centric individuals. They enjoyed meeting with the general partners. It was a it, they took a lot of pride in being a thought leader there. And real estate came out of that same environment. So when I got there, I think it was a real estate, if anyone had asked, was a total return vehicle that was meant to be additive to the portfolio returns, wasn't as focused on cash flows and other things. But roll forward 15 years, the, the plan has gone through some very fundamental shifts. I think I'm very proud of those because it's got with, with a risk lens that needs to be applied. Um, we have almost 50%, I believe we're 49% private markets in Oregon. So we're very heavily tilted, even more so than most endowments would be, um, which puts us out there in a large way and large capacity to the private markets. But um, when one applies a risk lens to it, I don't think a, a CIO or a board at some point it wakes up and says, whoa, we, we have a lot of cash flows that are going out to pay mature benefits to um, the beneficiaries. At the same time, we have a lot of illiquidity here that has lumpy cash flows and not as reliant on distribution. So where is all the risk inherent in this kind of portfolio? And I think the easy point was 20% plus in private equity, a layer on another 12%, 12.5% that's allocated to real estate. And we don't need to be the risk portfolio. We need to do what traditional real estate was doing. So um, that created a shift in the portfolio in 2015, 2014 or so with the next CIO that came on board that really said there's a fundamental reason for every single asset class. If he, he used to use this band technology and he said there's five members of a band. Each one has a different role to play. Real estate is not supposed to be the guitar, your bass guitar. So set a steady rhythm. I think he mentioned a pizza when trying to try to explain that you can have pepperoni and cheese, but it's really, that's your allocation. So whatever you put in the oven, your allocations are baked, right? I don't know if I understood that as well, but real estate I did understand was 
not supposed to be a risk on, completely risk on asset class. Um, so for the next few years, it took us, given that the corpus of the real estate program then was probably 7 billion or 8 billion, you really had to shift from a 30% core to 30% non-core, um, which meant a lot of shifting of portfolios, restructuring, bringing in new joint ventures, changing the makeup and risk tolerances of our joint ventures, and really letting the um, existing legacy open, closed in opportunistic funds bleed off naturally as they do and distribute. And uh, now we have to rebuild a part of that since we haven't been active in that space for a while. So now we're roughly a, we're actually a 60, 40% portfolio. So there's a fair bit of non-core still there. I just have been scripting the core for so long. We'll probably shift to a, a higher component of core here shortly, but that hasn't been codified. I love that and that sort of image of, of real estate as the bass player in the band. You know, keep a steady beat. I didn't understand because where the CIO really- was going. He and I were at loggerheads because <laughs> I was very proud of the portfolio that Brad had, you know, and Steve Brewer before that and myself and thought we had a tremendously good portfolio and really took pride in underwriting our partners and knowing our portfolio. But when he uh finally looked at me a little crosswise and came out with the, here's the five members of a band. Each has a role to play. Here's what your portfolio should be doing. Oh, I get it. <laughs> so he was on a mission after that to ensure that everybody understood the five members of the band. <laughs> I, I think I very clearly remember sitting with you at a bar, probably in some far off city in another country when this <laughs> all happened and, um, and trying to figure out kind of how this would affect, you know, what you were going to do next. Cause but it, it does, in retrospect, talking about like having a macro view about investing, and you think about today, you know, what role does real estate really play in a $90 billion portfolio? And uh, to just make it a total return vehicle would seem a little silly. So It does, and in the context of a pension plan that has payouts. Right, right. Well, there aren't too many $90 billion portfolios that don't have payouts. There's a couple <laughs> of foundations, maybe. That's very true. <laughs> maybe endowments, but yeah. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about structure and how you've evolved your thinking about you know, what's the role of commingled funds, um, closed-end funds and open-end funds, and then you know, where do you use them, um, and then how, how do you kind of build a separate account program that doesn't take up too much of your time um, in terms of you, know, you have a relatively lean staff. So you, you know, how do you think about discretion and allocating discretion or discretion in the box? Um, and so just, you know, what, and what have you learned about structure? And, and, and I guess I'll just throw one more question out there. Um, have you used the public market in, in this context, of, you know, for the public REITs to, to fill in for certain things because they just may be cyclically more, more timely and more efficient? Oh, that's a lot of questions. I'll try You're to welcome. remember each of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to remind you. <laughs> I really enjoyed meeting the brain power um, and intellectual capacity, I think, of the closed-in opportunistic funds and the GPs or the, you know, the principals at the GP shops that really originated private equity real estate investing. Now they're getting into their retirement years now, but um, really just an amazing crowd of just entrepreneurial spirit and intelligence. Um, and so I think that was the first part of my time here as an LP. Although where my real passion has evolved, and I think it certainly was then, is more in the programmatic joint ventures or separate accounts. Um, the creativity of investing in closed-end funds as an LP doesn't exist. It's, it's underwriting a, a fund mm-hmm. or a partnership, but all the creativity is done by the general partner inside their shop as they're accessing real estate and deal flow. It's not done by the LPs. You're not 
you don't have a seat at the table. You just get to sit there and look through the glass window every now and then if you've got a transparent shop and you can go to the LPAC meetings or um, whatever advisory board capacity you might have, but you're not active participants. Um, as as Bob, Bob Maynard of Idaho used to say, all you have is whining power. <laughs> That's actually very clever. Uh, and, and he's right. Um, yes, you have the power of your capital to speak with conviction at some time. Um, but the, the real creativity and flexibility is, is, for me, is in those evergreen structures that a pension fund can put together. Um, they, we're not constrained. Real estate is a very unique space, as I've learned, sitting on our committee with all the private markets, the four of us um, chair the committees now for the private markets in the, Oregon. But what we're able to do and construct in the real estate space is unique to private markets and that there's so many groups and local crowds or national that are willing to create a fund of one. Um, and that's, that's pretty special. Um, and it can be highly tailored and you can have, you get as complex as you want with all the different nuances or a mandate in the box, if you will. Um, but there's a real elegance to doing it. And um, it can create a real bonding partnership and participatory engagement along the way, especially on the investing side, um, which that to me has been the fun part of the portfolio. I think if we're designed to be a more resilient cash flow positive real estate program, that's helping pay out a component of our cash flows to assist the fixed income team in making those um, you know, quarterly distributions to beneficiaries, then it's a, gonna have to be done through these kind of vehicles that we have at seat at the table and are part of the development. Um, we came up with a kind of a pyramid diagram maybe uh, five, six years ago when the last CIO um, had said, all right, we need to shift the portfolio, real estate portfolio stance on what it does in the markets. And that is how we constructed our portfolio. At the very bo bottom of the line, you would have your most high quality, low levered, resilient core part. And that, that those are our open-ended funds, the Odyssey funds. They create an easy benchmark. It's something we can do performance measurement against, but that's our baseline. It's the very most core we can get the large hard to compete against them in the you know cbd environments against office just well governed you know what you're getting into you can underwrite with a lot of clarity um then we layer on our separate accounts above that and those can take on a, more leverage they have more capacity to development we can be more creative we can we can amend and change them on the on the on the fly. It's not something that I have any bureaucracy in the way of being creative with our separate accounts. And really, the the next top part of that pyramid, you get into the more highly levered, more opportunistic, and those are our diversifying strategies. Now, that's where we look at the close end spaces, diversifying and going into strategies and um, risks that we're not able to do or replicate easily within the separate account space. Um, and then lastly, I, we did decide to shift our public markets portfolio positioning, didn't want to get rid of it completely. The volatility is utterly frustrating for any private market uh, benchmark mm -hmm. team. So we did have to fight that, but we brought it down to only a 5% allocation. So it's a good enough dollar amount, but it's not a particularly large part of the portfolio. So hopefully that tail doesn't wag the dog. Um, but we did shift that to be in a gap or infill strategy, um, gap filling strategy. And that allowed us to go into cell towers, data storage, all the different uh, niche sectors now that are showing up in the private markets, but, um, you know, easier access, immediate scale. Um, and that's done as well. Obviously, the timing worked quite well. That's a few year old program now, but that's how we're trying to replicate. Or, or 
No, it was a little harder. We could have done, but that's um, we're really meant to be an index. Uh, we only do indexing or passive strategies in-house on the public side. Um, so we do that through an active management program. People love to put numbers on on these different buckets, if you will. So um, to the extent that it's in, you know, that it's in your public information, you know, what kind of return targets do you guys have for core versus, you know, the op- the separate accounts and then the opportunistic? I do not tend to like to think in terms of IRR anymore. Um, instead, I, I try to think relative to core. So give me an unlevered asset. What is that in today's environment? And what's the risk premium above that? So I can measure both the operational risk or the asset level risk, as well as the financial risk from there. So I don't tend to think of a number anymore. So people are giving me a, it's a 15 or whatever. I, now just get, I, I'll give you basis points over core today. And I'm glad we've, we've stuck to that mantra for a while. And it's generally worked because we've seen um, returns coming in. So if you're always using a 15 for value add, I think you'd be taking on exponentially more risk than you would have 10 years ago, obviously. Um, so generally we look at, you know, a hundred basis point to 200 somewhere in there as being a very achievable value add return. Um, so core plus value add, wherever you want to slice up those shades of gray. And then opportunistic is three to 500 basis points, kind of minimum return profile over core. Um, but you have to remember too the context of where we're coming from is that we're not we're not designed as a real estate program anymore to strike it through the you know hit home runs. We don't have to. We're not asked to make a twenty percent. Really, we're just asked to hit real estate like returns. So, whatever that is delivering now, get a premium over core, but focus on the cash. So let me ask you the next like annoying hard question as <laughs> we've seen things evolve. I mean. I think when you started out, CORE was clearly major CBD office buildings, regional malls, um, and, you know, maybe a handful of industrial properties or parks. The definition of CORE clearly changing. Um, regional malls maybe not in there or less, fewer of them in there. Um, industrial multifamily becoming more important. So how are you thinking about a CORE? What is CORE today for you? Yeah, that's certainly changing. I was thinking when you were just stating that, do you remember the term paradigm shift? Um, If you go back to the (laughs) mid 2000s, um, cap rates were moving down out of their typical 8% and into the sevens and sixes. And we were all talking about, this is a paradigm shift. Are they never going to be 8% again? Or, you know, (laughs) or is this temporary? Well, that book's kind of 15 years later. We we haven't seen an eight, right? I think think that that term paradigm shift kind of, you know, gets put into the museum with the term curate. <laughs> yes. And, <sir>. <laughs> <laughs> and, may, and maybe four quadrants. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the the world of core real estate is certainly involving. Um, mine has shifted quite a bit in that one of the areas of non-expertise I had stepping into the portfolio was any institutional oversight of multifamily, just something I didn't have any background in. And very few people did that were in the commercial real estate. I think it was kind of a niche class of its own, if you will. Um, But through this last 10 or 15 years, we've been trying to grow very conscientiously the the, uh, multifamily particular portfolio and that the cash flows are just so much more efficient. And I had never really recognized that characteristic trait until you start investing in it and realize why so many families have access to that and what type of investor it can see. Um, I think like everybody else, we're realizing that core is really just a definition of risk or a way of uh, viewing risk. Uh, um, so if you keep that as your lowest risk um, 
profiles, then it expands the number of different property types that can be considered core. It doesn't have to be just the four, as long as you have the operational capacity and abilities to execute on the ground with the real estate, then you can have core risk-like profile uh, through a number of different venues. And we're seeing those come out, obviously, in spades right now between single-family residential and life sciences, self-storage, a number of that others have played in, but it's always been small parts of the portfolio or one-off. But um, like many, I think we're looking at how do we diversify our income streams? And so that opens the door to a much wider swath of um, food groups and real estate beyond the four, what do you call them, quadrants, right? So we're expanding that and as we you, speak too. Have you shifted your open-end fund portfolio to kind of be more consistent with your view of what is core since that's your baseline? Um, we have. We we dabbled in, uh, I guess, five Odyssey funds now. But we also have another four open-ended funds, so a couple in industrial, another multi, two multifamily, um, and then the you know the Harrison Street Wildcats there that play in the the non-four food groups. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're doing the same thing. It's it's one easier way to access it, and then it helps us too if we're in a core open-ended fund that's pursuing them. There's some scale that's achieved there, expert expertise that's been developed over many years, and then we can figure out how to layer on um, additional risk from there if we want to go in via a separate account and or a fund closed-end structure, but at least it gives us a baseline to measure against. Focusing on the managers for a moment, um, and without saying anything that's going to lead you to a flood of emails and phone calls when this episode airs, <laughs> um, what qualities are, how, how do you think or does the state think about looking for its separate account managers? And how do those selection criteria differ from the fund managers that you select? I think the um, it is inherently more challenging to um, get a separate account with a pension fund, or at least from Oregon-centric standpoint. Um, I realize that the groups that we've invested with um, are long-standing, long um, discussions. Uh, many times, I, I can't think of any of our separate accounts that we hadn't been in communications for five plus years before even deciding to pull the trigger. It wasn't that our due diligence is that long, but it takes that long to, I think, to gain a comfort or trust, a um, just a, an intimate enough knowledge that says, I'm willing to be bet on a long-term evergreen partnership with this individual because I understand their fiduciary integrity. I think I, I like them as people as well as I think that's important. Um, and, and that you can trust them when all things go south because um, invariably something goes wrong at any one time and you just wanted the best partner at the other side of the table. Um, so it does take a lot of time. I don't think there's any script to it, but there are longstanding discussions. I can't think of a single meeting that you have that said, okay, I just have to do a separate account there. We, um, to your point earlier, we're a small team. We now have five people. That feels fantastic um, considering we were just one-armed paper hangers not long ago. So having five gives us a little more depth, but on the other hand, we're not going direct. We're not underwriting real estate necessarily, we're underwriting partnerships. Um, so if it takes us longer to bring something in, then that's the right decision. Um, we'll access and get to the real estate the same way, but it's gonna have to be done through a, a fiduciary that can that ultimately the powers of our conviction are given through our capital to invest. I'm so delighted actually that you said, and it's now on tape for all to hear, that it could be a five-year courtship to mm. before you have a separate account. Because people call us, operators call us up all the time and say, you know, we'd like to build a, you know, we'd like to have a separate account relationship. Can you help us? 
And we're like, yeah, do you want to hire us for five years? <laughs> because that is truly how long it could take. So um, thank you for, for sharing that. One, one question we get asked all the time is, uh, do your managers need to be registered investment advisors? Um, to go back to an earlier comment, we do not have a lot of bureaucracy at Oregon. We don't, we don't tend to put up a lot of paper trails. Um, they do not. It is a question we ask like anybody else. And then we do use a consultant like many of the other pension funds. Um, so it will be brought through the due diligence questionnaire and probably looked on as less favorable if they're not our, you know, registered investment advisors, but um, it is not a prerequisite or it wouldn't preclude us from moving forward. We probably would just say, hey, let's let's start working down that path and you know, get registered over time. Nice to have, not a need to have. Correct. Um, so let, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about geographies and property types and what you've been doing lately, um, you know, in this COVID environment and now post-COVID environment. Has it changed your um, investment approach to the office sector? And if so, how are you thinking about it? <laughs> I, I think uh, COVID gave us just solidified our viewpoints. We were, um, Oregon's legacy portfolio was always heavily tilted towards office. It was just such a scalable asset class or property type within the asset class. Um, we have spent the last five or six years trying to bring that denominator down by building the uh you know, building the rest of the portfolio up. Um, the pandemic has only taught us that we were, in hindsight, grateful we were doing that since I, I think office has some inherent challenges sitting ahead of it. Um, it'll always be a permanent part of our uh, portfolio, but it's something that needs to have a lesser role than historically. Um, and not brought on by the pandemic, I think just the lessons learned that, you know, mm -hmm. gives us more foundation to do so. CBD versus suburban office? <sighs> Personally speaking, I am a, a huge believer in CBD office. Um, I think that's, especially if you can create synergistic live work play. Um, so mixed use developments are, are my absolute favorite things to talk about. I think if you have the capital and the scale and the right partner and you have the development um, strategy in place, you could put together some amazing synergistic product and that'll include a component of living, working, playing. Um, and so, but that has to be in an infill environment. I'm not a big fan of suburban office as a whole. I think it's commodity space at the end of the day. Um, and people like people, um, there's some energy and attractiveness to it, as long as the commute patterns and ability to get in there. So maybe it's those second tier nodes, but as long as it's connected by transit and mass transit or, or easy access, then I think those will be fine. Um, right. so long term. And how are you thinking? Yeah, that may, all makes tons of sense. How are you thinking about industrial right now? I know uh, I think you've been building your industrial portfolio more recently. Um, how how are you finding building it, and um, is it is it too expensive to keep investing in right now, or you know what's your thought? It feels very expensive. Um, we took an easy way out and have kind of culled the portfolio a little bit from assets that we looked on as risk on assets for inherent challenges that are still, you know, that's lease up or just a one-off projects and locations that didn't make sense for us. And the sales felt very nice, but I can't sell an entire portfolio. So I'll never be able to rebuild it. Um, so we are and continuing to grow our industrial, but I think it's going to be done a little slower and more methodically. It's a highly competitive field right now is a lot of capital out there um, seeking the same exact assets. But long term, I think if one strips out the short term 
growth and noise that um, is in the industrial space long term. It has great fundamentals and is a good asset class for a pension fund to have if income is part of the equation. Going back to that efficient cash flows at the end of the day. And are you doing anything in the retail space, maybe on the more opportunistic end, as, as people are now kind of talking about redeveloping some of these defunct retail properties? Or um, how are you thinking about that? I think as, as we've gotten um, uh, more expertise on our committees, the the understanding of both headline risk and then the um, amount of education has to be provided to get a uh, deal over the goal line means that it's hard to speak retail right now because you're fighting the Wall Street Journal or any other news article that comes out each day. Um, but to that end, I'd like to think over the next few years, we can put into place a, a more value-add type uh, programmatic venture in retail. So I think there will be opportunities. I, I do think retail is a wonderful um, area. It just has to go through some transformation and downsizing, maybe given the American propensity yeah. to build and develop things. Um, so we might have an oversupply <laughs> and issue. And to shop. <laughs> we do like to, yeah. we are consumer we do like to shop. What about favorite markets in the U.S.? Are you kind of chasing some of the Denver, Austin, Nashville markets that, you know, a lot of other folks are chasing? Or how, how are you thinking about where you'd like to be building your portfolio today? I mean, I'm sure you currently have a broad national portfolio, so you have a good base. Yeah, and I don't think we're going into any new markets. I, I think the answer to that equation is about five years ago when we really started building out our separate accounts that went from you know three to nine. It's a um, it's been a concerted push to get into the markets that were both affordable for us, but we felt like we're on the path of growth, and those happen to be the same ones you just mentioned today. So, you know, we're looking at um, Nashville, Pittsburgh, Austin, um, Raleigh, Denver. Um, and we already have a footprint in each one of those markets. We're just expanding that footprint because we now have access through local partners and other groups that have the either land tied up or um, access to deal flow as it's going through. So those are markets we'll continue to expand on. They've only you know, withstood the test time and obviously benefited from the, this last challenging year. So maybe I've just missed it, but I don't usually hear Pittsburgh mentioned in that group of markets. What is we it about lucky. Pittsburgh? Uh, I, I really <laughs> enjoyed learning that city. I, I think the last time I had really visited Pittsburgh would have been back in the Steeltown days. And so, uh, you know, it, it was, um, we were fortunate enough through one of our separate accounts to get early access six, seven years ago now to uh, um, just a gem of a property that was, uh, you know, holy part of the tech-centric area of uh, autonomous driving and whatnot. So it feeds off the Carnegie Mellon and Pittsburgh University brain power that's there. Um, so kind of a special little niche market, hard to access. It's still going through some of its own transformations, but um, we were very fortunate to get a really mixed, neat mixed-use um, um, asset there that's only been expanding and growing. So very fortunate, but a neat market to learn because it's not one that you normally get into very easily. No, we should we should talk later. <laughs> we have we were talking about Pittsburgh yesterday. Um, so let's talk about investing outside the U.S. I know you have a long history of investing in international markets and um, both in the emerging markets and the developed markets. So give us some sense over the last fifteen years or so what kind of conclusions you've drawn about the value of investing outside the U.S. in real estate. 
uh, for a dollar-denominated pension fund. Yeah, it's um, that's been a challenge and a real shift for us. Um, when I joined, it was really Brad Childs, um, one of his defining strategies for his five or six year run he had with us was trying to get into the international emerging markets or emerging economies, which were back then it was the term BRICS, right? Everybody was chasing the uh, the BRICS. Um, I think China's we'll, now we'll graduated. We'll put that with paradigm shift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think there's an acronym left anymore, is there? Um, and at any rate, so that was our, our really uh, good five or six year run of trying to get into the emerging markets as they were opening up to foreign investors. And goodness, you just show up and the energy and the demand side is just palpable. You can feel the the, the need for quality real estate and, and whether it's India or China or Brazil, you name the emerging market. I think that still stands in real estate. It's one of your first asset classes that can get in there efficiently on the private side. Um, Generally, there's a need for housing, or there's something there that uh, you know, developers are everywhere. It seems, but um, in hindsight, even without the GFC or financial crisis, um, 2007, eight, and then you add in the pandemic and anything else in between, the currency volatility has just been enormous. Um, and then I think too, as a medium duration asset class, you're you're holding five to ten year assets. Very hard to turn them out quicker than that. It's more of an outlier than the norm. Um, you don't have visibility to the macro markets and the international trades, everything else that's occurring, all the different risks and political, all the just myriad factors that are involved in any real estate transaction in every single country, even in the US, but at least here we can, we understand our market better. Um, so the time period that goes through every one of those markets, uh, just the amount of changes is, is just huge. <laughs> I can't even go back and unravel them. Um, but we've been absolutely decimated by FX. And I guess it could go the other way, but um, for whatever reason, the global shifts um, haven't allowed that. And there's just no making up the returns. And, and that goes across all those markets, um, with exception, I guess, China at the time. But um, so no longer will real estate be an emerging market. Um, it's just too risk on. It, it requires a market timing element to it. And it certainly has a um, a lot of factors that we can't assess and understand and, um, you know, whether it's geopolitical, whatever the, the issues at play are. Instead, the, the allowance has been provided that the real estate portfolio is meant to provide resilient income streams and diversify across the other equity betas that's out there in public and private markets. So if we're going to do that, we can diversify our income streams and we can do that through international investing, but it's going to have to be through longer term core and more open-ended structures. And that'll be limited to the mature markets of Western Europe, UK, and, and Asia as well, the liquid markets of Asia. Um, and so I think probably in the next year or two, we'll be going out trying to sort out what that core-like profiles are, how many opportunities are there. It's not an area that we had any expertise in. So I mean, it'll be hard finding all the, the open-end funds that are out there. Um, but looking at long-dated um, investment opportunities or evergreen structures to diversify our portfolio. That might be a long-term 10 to 15%, uh, but more core-oriented. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, our history certainly parallels you know, each other um, when it comes to international. There, there was a time when Park Madison was started, we thought we would just be the placement agent for the emerging markets. We did so much yeah. in the emerging markets back in the 2006, 7, 8 sort of timeframe, but um, but completely have, you know, appreciate your experience and it has analogous experience. I think 
you know, obviously the dollar's been so ascendant over the last seven, eight years relative to other currencies, it's been impossible to 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 play to play the real estate markets without being fully hedged. And obviously you can't be fully hedged in those markets. Um, so I think but you're right, you do want to diversify and it does feel like, you know, given this six trillion dollars just issued that, you know, some hedge against uh, a declining dollar is, is prudent. So how do you do that? Um, and it's a, it's a challenge. And the open-end funds in Asia and in Europe are, um, many of them, people describe them as 1.0. So from a fees and structure and alignment of interest um, standards, they're not as good as many of the open-end funds mm. that have been established in more recent years here. So there may have to be a whole evolution of product developed as well to satisfy you know investors like yourself. I think over time that, that would occur um, as the global village is certainly shrinking but uh, that'll be a new foray for us and definitely a learning curve um, that we have yet to experience and we were going to do so in 2020 but obviously we didn't get out of our house as much so <laughs> it's postponed you got out a little bit which hopefully we'll talk about later i want to touch on esg and dei because it's such mm. a big focus for so many institutional investors and managers um so let me just start with does oregon have a specific uh, esg criteria when selecting managers? In policy, we were still adapting. The board does have a policy statement about ESG and that uh, you can do well by doing good. And they did codify um, that we incorporate that into our practices. What in turn that means was that the board looks down at staff and says, all right, figure out how to intelligently implement. Um, we have do not have a necessary an ESG policy, but it has become part and parcel of everything we do. I think the across all our capital markets and private market portfolios, the concept that we underwrite risk is really our job. Um, trying to identify it, understand it, and sort it. And one cannot uh, think with that lens and not incorporate ESG into one more risk factor that needs to be taken into account, whether it's sustainability, governance, or um, equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we have um, layered a series of, in the private market specifically, and each asset class has a little bit of nuances. We have layered in ESG factors into all of our due diligence questionnaires, but we didn't carve out a specific section. And the reason we didn't want to do that is we want to be able to write the script, we call it, as we're reviewing um, potential managers to invest with. And so rather than having them just hand us the big books and say, here you go, we've got these policies. Instead, we layer that within the, the context and we pull it back out of the DPQ afterwards and then can do an ESG assessment. It's not meant to be um, prescriptive or um, exclusionary or to, to um, create any binary outcomes yet. I think it's for us, it's how to be a partner at the table and use the concept that the, you know, the tide lifts all boats. So how do we collect the information, gather all of that, figure out what best practices are, and then help our partners that do not have necessarily the best practices or the most um, articulated practices um, I think if one uses ESG also as a, as a risk factor, then there would be certain groups that you probably would not invest with if they did not have good ESG governance you know, practices in place already. It's probably just not a partnership you want to participate with. Mm -hmm. But I can think of very few firms that um, would be anti-ESG. And when you think about you know, a, a demonstrated commitment, say, to diversity, um, mm. How how would you think about how, what constitutes that for you? 
I think that's the hardest one by far. I, I um, and this is more personally speaking, one since it's been on the forefront of our discussions more so than anything else for the last um, year now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it rightfully is in taking an important role. I think the, the challenge we're going to be faced with is that everybody wants actionable and more immediate results. Um, and this is going to be a um, this is going to be a very patient, slow process if it's going to be done correctly. And I think when it comes to diversity, whether it's either racial or economic, or if it's um, um, sexual orientation, name the um, name the part of that um, diversity piece, then it take, it's going to take time. Um, and it really is going to involve not so much our generation, but the generation below us. How do we bring that diversity piece up? Because I can't we can't just change out the C-suite that already exists and has had 40 or 50 years to get to build out what they have, right? Um, so it just can't be done. But we can effectuate change through that next generation, the intergenerational succession planning. But that takes patience and time. Um, so I think this is going to be an interesting um, test study in the patience of humans to see if we can all lift that boat together. <laughs> well said. Well, since we're talking about people, um, I think, Tony, you know more than anybody, um, you know, how, that we are in the people business. You often, I, I, I don't know too many people in our business who don't think of you as a friend um, because you're incredibly good at just calling people back, treating everybody well. And um, any tips for people who are listening? I mean, I know there's just not enough hours of the day. You have a kind of an impossible job and you have, you know, tons of people calling you all the time. How, anything you can share with people about how you try to just be fair and generous with your time? Yeah, I think sometimes maybe we're, we're perhaps too approachable. Um, so it does take a, a layer of angst and anxiety will build up over the course of weeks when you look at your emails or phone calls and say, oh, God, I got to respond to that, 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 and that. <laughs> but on the other hand, we do incorporate that into our DNA. And I, my mandate, if you will, to the team is that everything is should be returned within three days at the outlier. If it's an existing manager, obviously you get back very quickly. But um, for just general uh, reach outs, it's three day rule. And I think that's just a good rule to have. It means that you're open to the markets. And, and as an LP, we're only as intelligent as the information that's fed to us at the end of the day. Um, and so I'd like to think that communicating and reaching out and talking to people that you do and don't know really makes us smarter. We learn new strategies, new ways of doing it. There's such a myriad of intellectual wealth out there. And it's wonderful hearing people's stories because everybody believes in themselves, especially if they're a business owner and they have a firm, right? And there's there's just too many good ones out there. There's just a lot of talent and you can't do it all. My only feedback would be probably what I see now occurring more than anything else in this world of electronic communication, which is fine, is just blind emails. And I know I'm getting that same exact worded email that 600 other people are. And some of them even start with, I understand you invest in real estate. <laughs> are you kidding me? We've been in real estate for 40 years now or since the 80s, right? And we have 9 billion already planted in the ground. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, so that to me is just, somewhat egregious. And um, those are now going into the delete bin immediately. I don't even return it. And I feel bad doing that because I know the person on the other end is probably just trying to do their job and they're a good person. But that's not the way to build. Um, And it does take a personal connection to have a communication pattern. So start off with a a personal, you know, if it just takes, that's your job. So just do a personal introduction and then do the copy paste. And I'll probably reply to that. Most of us. So, 
speaking of personal, when do, when do you think you'll start going back to the office, taking meetings in person again, um, traveling to conferences? Does it happen by the end of this year? That I think we are sorting out too. Our um, our treasurer, who I ultimately report to uh, through a number of people, um, really just let, uh, made notice on the board meeting the other day that we will be going back to the office at least layered in in September timeframe, knowing what we do today. Um, so that as a as a goal for once we get back to reintegrating as a staff, uh, we just have to get the next few months. So we won't be taking external meetings. We certainly won't be traveling through the summer unless it's on our own personal time. I think the question is, when do we get guidance on travels in later Q3 and Q4 of, of this year? And I don't have those answers, but I'd like to think that, you know, by October, we might have some allowance to do some travels that are more required and needed and have a priority. But it's, it's still Great. early days of trying to sort this out. For, for all of us, although um, having spent, you know, a little time back in New York City over the last mm -hmm. couple of weeks and, and more time on airplanes. Um, there's a lot of people traveling again. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. The world is opening. It's happening each week. Um, and we're, you know, we're seeing it. We're getting the, um, the meeting requests are coming in left and right. And so we have to address them as an organization and figure out what our stance is. But it's, it's happening real time as you and I are speaking today. So hopefully in the, in the next few weeks, we have solid answers. But mm -hmm. Ask me in a month. Well, I saw some fabulous pictures of um, a motorcycle trip you took across the country uh, <laughs> earlier this year. Um, any anything, any stories or places you'd like to share? Um, things that uh, that were unexpected that you learned. The entire trip was unexpected. I I, I was on a <laughs> meeting in May, and I, I wish I could remember who said it, but I, I can't take credit. But someone had said that they didn't want to finish the pandemic because it was very unique to be working from home and in a whole different uh, work-life balance. And they said, I don't want this pandemic to be over and say that I could have done something different. Um, and rather than just thinking normal thoughts, I thought, oh goodness, I might get the chance to deploy in my own way. I always got deployed in the military and that was just, <laughs> that was a different kind of deployment. I thought I could actually get on the motorcycle, do what I love to do, which is find the back roads, head up in the mountains, sleep under the stars and make it a work trip too. If I could figure this out and it took a lot of logistic planning. Uh, so I traversed all the Western states for the most part for almost four full months. Um, but the personal connections were priceless. I, got, I think it was 37 days sleeping on the ground underneath the stars and primitive spots where not a human or anything around me, not even campgrounds. Um, that was fantastic. And I got to spend a lot of time with other general partners, people in our industry, friends, and and new work accomplishments or you know accomplices as well. So the to stay with friends and family for that four months was just priceless. Um, and to meet people and create a little bit of personal connections in their houses and with their family, it was, it was just a really special time. Um, and to tie it back to Park Madison, the uh, Carrie, your um, cohort there. I thought I had visited the smallest town on the planet in Pinedale, Washington, uh, Wyoming. And Wyoming, if you ever get the joy of traveling through it, um, can be a very windswept, um, agonizing drive um, until you get to the mountain areas, which can be absolutely beautiful. Um, and I was traversing across Wyoming, just trying to get the motorcycle over with all my camping gear and everything all over it. I'm probably, I felt like I was at a 45 degree angle, probably wasn't that 
But at any rate, I'm, I'm just trying to get across and the temperatures are dropping from the 90s down into the 40s and then 30s. The only town is this little Pinedale, Washington, uh, Wyoming, sorry. And it's, uh, um, I don't know what it is, 100 people strong if it's, if it's lucky on a good day other than tourists. And uh, I finally ramble into town. By that point, it's sleeting and snowing. <laughs> I'm on a motorcycle. And I think this is not a good recipe. I have managed for four months not to be in one hotel room. Um, I did not succeed after that night. I needed a hotel. So I stayed in a place that had gone under foreclosure. Dad and son were fixing it up, but I got to stay in Pinedale, Washington. So or in Wyoming, I keep saying. Um, so while that in itself is interesting, it was more interesting that Carrie's, uh, she, as I was comparing my notes with her, her aunt and uncle happened to live in Pinedale, Wyoming. <laughs> I could have no stayed there with people I kind of knew. <laughs> Always, always put something on Instagram if you're looking for a place to stay in Pinedale. I guess. <laughs> you might have seen it. <laughs> I just couldn't believe that. Is it a, oh, that the is the so crossroads funny. of our industry are just so small. Everybody knows everybody and it's a small world. <laughs> Carrie has a lot of relatives and friends in a lot of places. So um, that doesn't actually shock me, but that's a funny story. Um, wow. Well, you know, you talked about your parents being... PhDs, but also being vagabonds. And so I guess, you know, there's some DNA in there in there that uh, <laughs> your trip sounds fantastic. I would never have the, the guts or the fortitude or, you know, to, to do that on a motorcycle, but it sounds very cool. It sort of takes me back to when I drove across the country in a 1966 six shift Volvo. Oh, um, yes. And yeah. um, that was, that was sort of my equivalent, if you will. But um, yeah, people ask if I want to do that. People ask if I want to repeat it this summer, and I, I could not. It would be um, the logistics involved for maintaining a work while on the road were just Herculean. I had to pre-plan everything. So if it was a Friday through Monday, getting up over the mountains, that means by Monday I had to be into a town that I knew I had Wi-Fi and a good connection and could legitimately work for the next few days. And that took a lot of pre-planning. Um, I would want to do it differently and just be all or none, either stay and work or get out and be on vacation but I can't take four months vacation so <laughs> definitely not in this job no so to maybe in closing um gosh Tony you've had such a fun and interesting traverse in your career for those younger folks who are listening who are looking to build their own career in real estate um any advice you'd like to offer to folks who are listening to the podcast hmm. I think this single most Impactful advice is, is to understand yourself and know where your passion is. And then there's all different avenues to take from there. But I think you have to understand what makes you tick. If it's um, if it's doing the deal and eating what you kill and consummating a tra transaction in order to feel like that is, empowers one, then that's one way of, of doing it. If it's for me, it's not, I could care less about consummating the deal and winning the argument or winning the negotiation. I'm not very empowered by money. I want to be paid well for what I do, but I'm not trying to do it for the, the money behind it. Um, I like working for something that's bigger than me, but at the same time, the human connections that are in real estate are just fantastic. It's, it's a tangled web of an amazing bunch of people. Um, but that's what makes me tick. And I realize I can do that in the real estate context because I love real estate too. It's a fascinating game. Uh, but I think you have to know what powers you. What what really makes you tick at the end of the day is, is it earning the next paycheck because success is just measured by what your own lens is. It's not what somebody else tells you it is. Um, so I think that's the best you thing. Are you are the end do. game. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, somebody said that Alexander the Great is actually buried along with his his horse driver, right? So it didn't matter if you conquered the world, yeah. just fill up and. Well, that is fantastic advice. Tony, it's so great to see you on Zoom, talk to you. Um, and I really, really appreciate your sharing your your thoughts, your spirit, um, your wisdom with everybody. So thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Nancy. That's all for this week's episode of Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. Thanks to Tony for discussing Oregon PERS's market outlook and his personal history. As always, thanks to Nancy for hosting. We'd also like to thank Park Madison Partners for working with Refi on this podcast series. For more information on the firm, please visit their website at parkmadisonpartners.com. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Benson. Theme music is by Jazzhar. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Refi Radio in partnership with Park Madison Partners. I'm Will Moyo. Until next time.